I have a true story to tell you all today about a man who was adventurous and jumped over walls, who was actually an administrator. Usually administrators aren't adventurous and jumped over walls, but this guy did. And it's also a story about a clash between an ex-wizard and an apostle. This is going to be interesting. This is a true story that happened almost 2,000 years ago in the Middle East. And it was in the land of Israel, but it didn't happen in the area of Jerusalem and Judea, where a lot of our stories have been happening. This one happened in a province directly north of there. And I'll give you some of those details as we get into the story. But this is a true story from the Word of God. It was written down by a man named Luke, who was a traveling companion of, uh, of the Apostle Paul, or Shaul, and uh, was also a doctor. And he wrote two books. His first book was about Yeshua the Messiah, how he was born, uh, some of the events surrounding his birth, and then his life and his teachings and some of the uh, fantastic things that he did. And then his second book was about what happened after Yeshua lifted off of planet Earth and gave the mission to his disciples and they started a movement. So this is a story from the early Yeshua movement. You remember, in the story I told last week, there were these seven administrators that were chosen by the early community of Yeshua's disciples in Jerusalem. And they were in charge of um, stewarding the common fund and making sure that all of the dependents in the community, like the widows, who didn't have family to take care of them, got fed. So that's, that's what these guys did full time. Uh, one of them was named Stephen. Uh, he got killed because he, he ended up in the Supreme Court. He ended up uh, confronting the men in the Supreme Court because they weren't keeping God's law. And they got so angry that they dragged him outside the city and they killed him. And there was a young man that was a member of the Supreme Court. We call it the Sanhedrin. And his name was Shaul. Can you all say Shaul? He also had a Greek name named Paul. Anyway, he was a very angry young man. And after they killed Stephen, he went on a rampage. He started going through the city and trying to hunt down people who followed Yeshua of Nazareth so that he could take them to court and see if he could get them put in the slammer or even killed. So he was just going on a rampage and uh, dragging people out of their houses and dragging them into court and uh, doing some horrible things. He was really wreaking havoc on the early Yeshua community in Jerusalem. So guess what all of these followers of Yeshua did while, while Shaul was on this rampage? A lot of them ran away from Jerusalem. They said, we're in danger, we better run away. And so they ran away from Jerusalem and they went all over the province of uh, Judea, where Jerusalem was. That would be like if there were some dangerous things happening in Prince Albert and we all said, we got to get out of here. So we went all over Saskatchewan. Maybe, uh, maybe we had some family members up north, maybe on a reserve, or maybe someone had a farm way down south. So we all took off for all over the place. And some of them even went up into the province north of Israel, which was called the Shomron. Can you all say Shomron? That's what we call it in the Hebrew language. In English, it's uh, usually called Samaria. So uh, wh wh I always think, thought that was funny, the name Samaria. Oh, what's this place called? Samaria. Well, I know it's some area, but what's it called? It's Samaria. <laughs> anyway, I wonder how many times people have had some communication difficulties with that. But that's where this story really starts. These people were scattering, they were running away from Jerusalem and they were scattering all over Judea and they were telling, telling everybody about Yeshua while they went. And one of those seven administrators, there were only six of them left, but one of them was named Philip. Can you guys say Philip? Philip. 
And if you read it in Hebrew, it says Pilipos. What do you think of the name Pilipos? It's kind of cute, hey? I know Teresa really likes the name Pilipos. Anyway, we'll just call him Philip because that's what most people call him in English. So Philip took off from Jerusalem. He escaped. The only disciples of Yeshua that were left in Jerusalem were the apostles themselves. And they were hiding out somewhere, so nobody knew what they were. There was probably a big manhunt that was uh, launched for them. They might have had to hide out in Jerusalem. Uh, It doesn't say, but maybe because if they tried to escape outside the city walls, there was a watch on them, and maybe they would get arrested. Who knows? But anyway, they were the only ones that were left in Jerusalem. And Philip, he ran north. He ran to a province called Samaria, like we talked about, to the capital city. It was just called the city of Samaria. And I have to tell you a little bit about the people who lived in this province so that you'll be able to understand this story. You know how the people of Israel lived in the land of Israel. And then about 2,500 years ago, uh, there was a big country called Assyria. And they had an army full of very mean men. And they liked to leave Assyria and go and kill people and take over other countries. They were like, they were like the control freaks of the ancient world. All right? And anyway, Assyria came through and attacked Israel. And they took away a lot of the people of Israel, especially the, the, the northern tribes. And they took the northern tribes out of Israel, and then they brought some other groups of people to live in that area, other ethnicities. It was part of their people displacement program so that they could keep everyone displaced, disoriented, and uh, controllable. So they brought all these people in, and these people, they worshipped all kinds of gods. They had their, their gods in their suitcases, and their, their gods in their houses, and all kinds of gods that they would pray to. And when they brought them into this area, they started having some problems. They, uh, there were some wild animals that were killing some of their children uh, that were uh, on, on the loose, and they were having problems, and they said, what's the God from this area? We need to worship him too so that he'll take care of us. And uh, people said, well, that, the God that was originally worshipped in this area was named Yahweh. So they said, okay, we'll worship Yahweh also. So they had all of these gods, and then they added uh, Yahweh, the God of Israel, to the mix. So... Anyway, you know how the Jewish people were exiled to Babylon for 70 years, and then they came back. Um, Ezra was the guy who led them, and there was also a man named Nehemiah. And they were rebuilding the temple, and some of these people that worshipped Yahweh, the God of Israel, and a bunch of other gods that weren't originally from Israel, some of these people came and said, Hey, we want to join you guys. We want to help, uh, we wanna help um, build the temple. And Ezra and Nehemiah said, no, this is, this is a job that God's just given us to do. So we're just going to do this by ourselves. Thank you very much. And they got really mad about that and really mean. And after that, the, uh, the Jewish people didn't get along very well at all with these people that Assyria brought in. And those people came to be known as Samaritans. Can you say Samaritans? All right. So that happened about 2,500 years ago. So you had the Jewish people in Judea, and then right north of them you had this province called Samaria, where the Samaritans live. And uh, things got really interesting a couple hundred years after that. This was a couple hundred years before Yeshua was born. There was a high priest of Israel, and he had two sons. And he said, I want this son to become high priest when I die. So he died, and that son became high priest. But what happened to the other son? The other son said, I wanted to be high priest. And I don't get to be high priest, but I want to be. And so guess what he did? He went north to Samaria and he said, Hey, Samaritans, let's build a temple and I'm going to be the high priest. And we'll kind of start our own religion. And that's what they did. So this other son got, basically got the shaft from the high priesthood. He went north to the biggest city in the area, which was called Shechem. Everybody say Shechem. It, today it's called Nablus. 
And it's actually the second biggest Arab city in Israel. The biggest one is Ramallah. The second biggest is Nablus. So he went north to this big city, Shechem, to the Samaritans, and he said, what do you say? And they went for it. And so they built this temple, and they became like rivals. You had the Jewish people in Judea with their temple in Jerusalem, and then you had the Samaritans with their temple up outside Shechem on a mountain called Mount Gerizim. So that happened a couple hundred years before Yeshua. And after that, things just got worse. You had all this rivalry, and the Jewish people in Jerusalem were saying, we're God's people, and we've got the covenant with God, and we've got the, we've got the true worship. We have the temple that God told God said to build. And the Samaritans said, no, we're God's people, and we've got the real temple, and you shouldn't worship there, you should worship here. Kind of sounds like some religions and churches today, doesn't it? We're God's people, and we've got the real, we've got... You should come to us. Anyway, so that was, that was the idea. Now, of course, the Jewish people were right. Yeshua, Yeshua um, commented on that in saying the Jewish people worship the God they know. Uh, you Samaritans, you don't have a clue who you're worshiping, essentially, right? But anyway, that was the situation. So there's a lot of bad blood that developed. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you a couple little stories that will help you to, help you to see that. Uh, the Jewish people had a calendar where the month would start when that first liver of the new moon was sighted. And so when they sighted that in Jerusalem, the Supreme Court would say, all right, it's the new month, notify the whole country. And the way they would notify the whole country is by lighting like big bonfires on, on hilltops. So they would light the bonfire, and they could see the bonfire five or ten miles from there on another hilltop, so they would light one, and that's how they would spread the message that it was the new month. And they had to be able to do that for some business reasons, economic reasons, that kind of stuff, right? So it was pretty important. The Samaritans, guess what they would do? They would light bonfires on the wrong days, just to confuse the, uh, the Jewish people, just to get those lines of communication crossed. So they, 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 they made mischief, uh, they, they did those kinds of things. There was one time when Yeshua and his merry band of men were traveling through Samaria and they needed somewhere to stay for the night and they needed to get some food, right? So they went to this town and guess what happened? The Samaritans just told them to take off. Just didn't, didn't let them stay there, didn't give them any food. Uh, that was the kind of reception you could maybe have if you were going through Samaria. They probably chucked rocks at Jews sometimes going through the area, cat called them, those kinds of things. A lot of bad blood. There was one time when Yeshua and his merry band of men, I'm just saying that for fun today, by the way, but they were at this big city, Shechem, um, that I'm telling you about, and his guys went into the city to get some food, and he was sitting by a well. This story was recorded by his disciple, Yochanan, in the Gospel of John, and uh, there was this woman that came out to get some water, and Yeshua, Yeshua actually engaged her in a conversation, and the woman was shocked. She's like, um, you're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you talking to me? Like, she couldn't believe it. She's like, Jews don't talk to Samaritans. But this guy's talking to me. So can you kind of get the feel for the Jewish, the Jewish and Samaritan dynamic? It, it, what would it be like today? It would kind of be... It would, maybe the Samaritans were kind of like what Mormons are to uh, Protestant Christians today. Like, Mormons say Salt Lake City is basically the new Zion. Yeah, they have the Old New Testament, and then they also have another testament. Um, it's kind of like they're kind of Christians, but they've kind of threw all this other stuff into the mix. It's kind of like mixed, mixed breed kind of, kind of deal happening. Kind of like that. Or if you can imagine if there was like, let's say, a United Church pastor in the city here, and he was a practicing homosexual and a polygamist. He had two husbands. 
Like, if you can imagine how you'd look at a guy like that, you'd be like, yeah, that guy has a church and he reads the Bible, but he's got some really messed up stuff going on. And he just doesn't believe the whole Bible. That's kind of the way the Samaritans were a couple thousand years ago. Does that, does that help you kind of get a feel for Samaritans? All right. So anyway, that, these are the guys that Philip went to. He went right to their capital city. And guess what he started doing? He started telling everybody about Yeshua. He was proclaiming the Messiah to them. And he wasn't just doing a lot of talking. He was doing some very powerful things that got everyone's attention also. There were some paraplegics and some quadriplegics in that city. What's a paraplegic? That's someone who's crippled from the waist down, right? What's a, what's a quadriplegic? That's someone who's paralyzed, basically. Someone who's entirely paralyzed. There were some people like that in the city, and Philip went, and he put his hands on them, and he prayed for them, and guess what happened? God healed them. He restored these crippled people so that they could have full use of their limbs and full range of motion with all four of their limbs again. And when, So when Philip did that, not just talking about this guy, Yeshua, who's supposedly the Messiah, but when he healed a couple, several people who were paraplegics and quadriplegics, like there was just joy that just tore through the city. People were so happy to see these people healed. And they all of a sudden, the whole city just gave their attention to Philip. They said, okay, what's this guy about? What does he have to tell us? So Philip told them about Yeshua. And there was quite a few people in that city who became believers in Yeshua, the Messiah. And... What did Philip do right away? He took them down to the water and he dunked them in the water. He immersed them as a sign that they believed in Yeshua. They were committed disciples. Now that's pretty radical right there. A Samaritan believing in a Jew as the Messiah. Woo! Now, here's where the story gets really interesting. There was a guy in this capital city of Samaria named Shimon. Can you guys say Shimon? He, was, he had been around for a long time, and he was a wizard. So he practiced magic arts. And he had the people of Samaria bedazzled. Like, everybody gave him their attention. The, the rich, the poor, the young, the old. He'd walk past and they'd be like, wow, it's Shimon. In fact, he, he, had, he, he marketed himself off as a famous person. They all thought he was extremely powerful to the degree where he had a special title with everybody. He was called the great power of God. That was this wizard's name. So like, if you can imagine him walking down the street, maybe he had a little entourage, who knows. If you can imagine a little boy, the little boy would be like, look dad, there's Shimon, the great power of God. They'd be like, it's... Welcome, Shimon, the great power of God. And he would do all kinds of miracles, and he had everybody floored, right? Anyway, this was, um, this was this character. Well, Shimon, the wizard, saw these miracles that Philip was doing. And when he heard the message about Yeshua, he actually did a total 180, and he decided to follow Yeshua. He became a believer in Yeshua. And so, along with all these other people... Um, Philip took him down to the water and immersed him in the water so that he became a fully-fledged disciple of the Master. It's kind of cool. I assume at that point he became an ex-wizard. Now, this is where the story gets interesting. You have all these people who hear the good news of the kingdom of God, who hear about who Yeshua is, who become real disciples of him. They're, they're immersed in water, the whole nine yards, right? But they didn't experience something that the disciples of Yeshua in the city of Jerusalem had experienced. You remember how the Holy Spirit fell 
on the disciples of Yeshua in Jerusalem. They were very empowered and they were enabled to speak uh, lang- other languages supernaturally that they hadn't learned uh, by natural means. And there were these, there were these, um, there were these things that they were experiencing of the Spirit of God, and, and and this wasn't happening with the disciples of Yeshua in Samaria. They just believed and got baptized. So, what happened? Word reached the apostles that were hiding out in Jerusalem about the Samaritans and that they had come to believe in Yeshua. And so they sent, they sent a couple of their head guys. They sent uh, Shimon Kepha or Simon Peter, and they sent Yohanan, John down to them, alright? So Simon, Peter, and John came to the Samaritans and uh, they began laying their hands on them, just putting their hands on them and praying for each one of these Samaritan disciples to become, uh, to, to receive the Holy Spirit. That the, and guess what was ha- started happening? The Holy Spirit started falling on the Samaritan disciples and they began experiencing the same things that the, those disciples in Jerusalem experienced. Now, when Shimon saw that, he was amazed. And he hauled out his wallet and he offered cash to Simon, Peter, and John. And he said, let, let, me, let, me, let me buy this power off of you uh, so that anyone that I lay my hands on will be able to receive the Holy Spirit also. What's your price? And uh, this, is where, this is where you have to listen really closely because the ex-wizard's name was Shimon. And Yeshua's apostle's name was Shimon, right? So the apostle Shimon said to the ex-wizard Shimon, and you know, it's, 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 it's pretty rough language if you actually read it. Basically, the way it would sound in English is what he said to him is, your money can go to hell and you can go there with it. It's more politely often translated as, may your silver perish with you. But anyway, that's what he said. And then he said, because you thought that you could buy God's free gift with money. You have no share in what we're doing because your heart is wrong and you should repent and you should pray to the master that if possible, he'll forgive you because I can see that you still have bitter rebelliousness in you and you're still controlled by injustice. That's what, Shim- that's what Shimon the Apostle said to Shimon the ex-wizard. And Shimon, the story ends with Shimon the ex-wizard saying, "Ah, pray to the master yourselves for me so that none of these things that you've said will happen to me. And that's the story about Philip going north and telling the people in Shechem, the capital city of Samaria, about Yeshua, about the wizard who becomes an ex-wizard, how he tries to pay cash for this ability to confer the Holy Spirit on people, and he, how he gets chewed out by uh, Shimon the Apostle. So I have a couple of questions that I'm going to uh, ask you about this story, and uh, we'll, we'll think through the story a little bit together. My first question about this story that we can think about is, what do you like about this story? Maybe, maybe you just like the fact that there's a magician in this story. I mean, magicians don't turn up on every page of scripture. There's something kind of almost like legendary about magicians or like, ooh, what's going to happen? There's a wizard. And uh, obviously in the story, there was some pretty, uh, pretty incredible things. Anyway, maybe you like that. Uh, maybe you like the fact that Samaritans like these Mean people, these bad dudes, these rejects became disciples. That's pretty fantastic. Uh, maybe you like the fact that Shaul was trying to snuff out this movement and they ended up just growing more and getting more powerful. It's like, oh, that didn't work. 
Uh, maybe you like how Philip, this administrator, uh, you probably noticed this, but most administrators aren't super exciting or adventurous people. Like if you're an administrator or a manager, it's probably because you're just pretty solid, even keeled, balanced, you keep things going the same, right? Maybe you like that this administrator totally jumped the wall of his job description and ended up going to this capital city of like a bunch of rejects and uh, changing the city. That's pretty fantastic. Um, maybe, uh, maybe you like how Shimon, the apostle, like chewed out uh, Shimon, the ex-wizard. Maybe you like how blunt he was. If you're a blunt person, maybe you're like, yeah, give it to him, tell, him, tell it to him the way he is. Uh, here's another question. What, what do you... Is there anything about this story that bothers you? Or maybe that's something that bothers you, that Shimon was so blunt. He really didn't mince his words. If you, if you read it, whew, that's a pretty strong language. Maybe that's something that bothers you. How could he be so unkind or insensitive or not gentle with poor Shimon the ex-wizard? Oh, maybe that bothered you about the story. Uh, maybe, it, maybe it kind of made you sad that Shimon the ex-wizard had a relapse. Sounds like he kind of temporarily went back to a certain mindset we're thinking that this was some kind of a cash deal or something. Maybe that bothered you. Uh, maybe it bothered you that the Holy Spirit didn't show up when these disciples became disciples. Maybe, maybe, maybe you, you thought, well, what happened to the priesthood of all believers? How come God didn't just pour the Holy Spirit on them? How come the apostles had to come down and put their hands on them? Well, what happened to the priesthood of all believers? Maybe, maybe that bothered you. Or maybe it just raised some questions in your mind. Here's another question for you about the story. Who can you relate to in the story? When you look back at your life and you compare it to the experiences of some of the people in the story, uh, can you maybe relate to the Jerusalem community where bad news hit the community, but it turned out for the best? It turned out to actually be good news in disguise. Maybe you've had something in your life like that, where you hit a roadblock, you hit an obstacle, you encountered resistance, or you hit some kind of trouble, and at first glance you just thought, it's over. This thing's going to kill me. This is ruining my life as it's been. But then as it turned out, it actually turned out for the best. It helped you to grow. Or uh, it helped you to break out and expand. Almost like maybe getting pushed out of the nest. Maybe you've experienced that in your life. Uh, maybe you can relate to Philip. Uh, someone who's really even-keeled and maybe doesn't try a lot of new things. Administrator, management type. And maybe you had some time in your life where you just totally did something new, something different, you broke out of the box, and it turned out to be a fantastic experience. You had an adventure. <laughs> maybe, uh, maybe you can relate to that. Or maybe you can relate to the Samaritans in this story. The Samar think, think, can you imagine being a Samaritan? Maybe some of these Samaritans deep down inside really wondered if they were God's chosen people, if they really did have a covenant relationship, if their temple really was the true one. I mean... For crying out loud, these people only built the temple a couple of centuries before that. It's really hard to obscure that kind of history in the course of only a couple hundred years. Maybe deep down inside, some of them knew, you know what? We're just fooling around. We're messing with God. We've got a big pride thing going. We're rejects. We're not loved. Maybe that's how some of the Samaritans felt. And could you imagine being one of those Samaritans and having Philip come to you and say, God is inviting you into a covenant relationship with, with Him. He loves you. He wants you to come to Him. And it doesn't even mean that you have to come to Jerusalem and worship. You can worship Him anywhere. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine like being a Samaritan and being told, God loves you so much that He sent the Messiah to die for your sins so that you can live, so that you can go free, so that you can be forgiven, so that you can be reconciled to the true God. 
Wow. It's like all of a sudden you go from being unloved to being loved. You go from being a reject to being accepted. You go from being on the outside to being on the inside. Wow. Maybe you can relate to that in your life. Um, the experience that those Samaritan disciples had. Uh, maybe you can relate to Shimon, the ex-wizard. Maybe you've had some time in your life where uh, you, you had become a follower of Yeshua and you were learning the word, but you had a past and you had certain horrible habits from your old life. Uh, maybe you had habitual sin or something or addiction or whatever, whatever the case may be. And after you became a believer, you had a relapse. We see in the story, Shimon, the ex, ex-magician had a relapse. Maybe you can relate to that at some point in your life. Or maybe you can relate to Shimon, the apostle, um, and you had some point in your life when you had to confront someone on sin, when you had to rebuke someone because they were just totally in the wrong and you had to clear the air and make it very obvious that these people were not people that you were associated with. Maybe you can relate to that uh, uncomfortable situation that Shimon, the apostle, uh, had there. So the, the, those are just the main characters in this story and hopefully we can relate to at least one of them and really see ourselves as being part of this story. Um, the, last, the last couple of questions here I want to think about is uh, what does this story teach us about people and about ourselves and the world around us and, and also what does this story tell us about Yeshua the Messiah who is the star of the story like he is of every story. Um, here, here are a couple of things that I noticed about what this story teaches us about people. Um, one thing this story teaches us is that we will encounter crises, trouble will hit, and it will disrupt our status quo, it will change our lives, and we can either crumple and go belly up, or we can respond to it in such a manner that it will enable us to grow, to break out of the mold, to expand. That's one thing that this story teaches us. And, you know, that's very true for us as a community of disciples. It's true if you're a business owner, an employer, or an employee. It's true in relationships. It's, tr- it's true in our personal lives and so many things. It's very true that crises and trouble can, and, and, and even full-on attacks from other people can be your best friend if you respond to them, cor- if you respond to them correctly. Another thing um, this story teaches us is that you just can't pigeonhole people. Philip was an administrator. He took care of money. He made sure that people were fed. He just took care of practical stuff. But you couldn't pigeonhole the guy. Because as it turns out, he breaks out of the mold, he goes up to this big capital city, and he starts a revolution. So the guy goes from an administrator to a revolutionary. And just look at the people in your neighborhood, look at your family members, Uh, people that maybe you would pigeonhole and say, you know, this person is this way and they're always going to act that way and they're never going to be any different. And just remind yourself, that's not true. People will surprise you. They can surprise you. People can change. And uh, look for that in people. And look for that in yourself too. If if you uh, maybe have some dream in your heart that maybe God has placed there and you think to yourself, I, I couldn't do that. I'm not, kind of, I'm not that kind of a person. I've never done anything like that. Maybe you haven't done anything like that. But Philip never started a revolution either. But that didn't stop him from starting a revolution. So if you have a dream maybe that God's given you and you've just never done something like that before, go for it anyway. Uh, pull a Philip on that one. Uh, that's something that we, uh, we learned from the story. Uh, another thing we learned from the story, and this is kind of related, is that you are bigger than your job. 
Philip had a job description. He, he took care of funds. He made sure that people were fed. He managed things. But did you notice that Philip, when he had to flee Jerusalem, he didn't say, well, I guess I'll just go to another city and try and get a job like my old job. No, he was bigger than his job. Uh, you know, very, very often if you ask, in conversation, if you meet someone, it doesn't take long before you talk about what you do. And very often, that's what you are. That is all that you are. That is who you are. Oh, I am an accountant. I am a plumber. I am a manager. I am a Tim Hortons worker. And for a lot of people, that's, that's their identity. That is who they are. And something this story teaches us is, no, you are bigger than that. You're bigger than your job. Another thing this story teaches us is that there are adventures awaiting every one of us. And guess where they are? They're over the wall. The adventures are on the other side of the wall. Could you see that in Philip's story? The Samaritans, there was a huge cultural barrier between the Jewish people, including the Jewish disciples, and the Samaritans. There was a wall built there. And if Philip was going to go on that adventure with Messiah, he was going to have to jump over the wall. So if you want to go on adventures, my, my advice would be, identify the walls in your life, identify who's on the other side of the wall, and then jump the wall and go to those people. So if there are certain kinds of people on your block, or maybe some acquaintances of yours or something like that, and you're like, those are the people that are totally different than me, those are the people that quite frankly kind of scare me, uh, those are the people that I don't have a clue what I could ever talk with about, those are probably the kinds of people you want to jump the wall and uh, go and talk to. And who knows, some cool stuff might happen as a result of that. So that's something that the story about Philip from the, uh, the book of Acts teaches us. It's like there are adventures over the wall, so go and jump the wall, talk to people that aren't like you, build friendships with them, and cool stuff's going to happen. Um, another thing that this story teaches us is about, about human beings in general is that as human beings generally, most of us are watchers and followers. So we spend, we spend most of our time watching other people, uh, seeing what they're doing, and, uh, and following other people. I mean, we're all very responsive to the influences in our life, right? So you see that, for instance, with, uh, with, with Simone, the, the, uh, the wizard in this story, and how everyone gave him their attention. Everybody was watching Shimon. Everyone was following this guy to a certain degree. And then what happened? Philip came in and he healed a couple uh, quadriplegics and paraplegics and he wowed the city and they went from watching and following Shimon the wizard to watching and following Yeshua the Messiah whom Philip was preaching. So you, you kind of see that, right? And that's true in our city too. Everyone in the city is watching people. Everyone in the city is following somebody or following a bunch of people. And uh, I think it's, it's our, I think you could say it's our mission as followers of Yeshua, Jesus of Nazareth, to be like, take a look at him. Take a look at what he's done. Uh, take a look at his teachings. And you know, obviously as followers of him, that's, that's what we do. We're watching, we're looking at him, we're following him, right? And I mean, man, you look at our, our world and they're like, there's so many things vying for our attention to, eh? So, you, you see that in this story. Hey, how's it going? Good, man. Yeah, just uh, telling a story and sharing some stuff that I figure from it. So, welcome. Yeah, cool. Um, another thing that this story teaches us about us as human beings is it's very hard for us to just accept something as a gift. It's very hard for us often to receive. 
Um, some of us are more giver types. So we, we feel like we're, we, you know, maybe uh, we have people in our lives that depend on us or people that need us. Uh, maybe in our job situation, uh, we're constantly uh, helping other people or those kinds of things. So that's something we see in the story. Uh, very often we're like that, and it's hard for us. Do you want to leave that alone for now? Thanks, cutie. It's hard for us to just receive something as a free gift, eh? And uh, something this story teaches us is there is a time to just open your heart and receive a free gift and say thank you. It's like we want to pay for everything. And then uh, the last thing that this story teaches us about us as human beings is often we want somebody else to do it for us. Did you notice that? It's like uh, Shimon the Apostle. So he, he, he confronts Shimon the ex-magician on... Uh, on these problems, and what does Shimon the ex-magician say? Is he like, guys, uh, can we just stop for a second? I, I really need to pray about this. Maybe you'd pray with me. No, he's like, huh, you guys, pray for me, you guys, pray for me. And I mean, that's true of us, I, uh, of us as human beings in general, hey? Very often, instead of doing something for ourselves, we expect someone else to do it for us. Maybe a friend, or uh, our employer, or the government, or God, or something like that. And something that story tells us is like, no, you... You need to believe for yourself. You need to act for yourself. And uh, you need to pray for yourself. I don't know, have you ever noticed that? Like, often if someone, let's say someone's sick and they, they, want, uh, they want to be healed, like, it's almost like, well, if we can just rally up enough people to pray about this, maybe we can, like, gang up on God and we can kind of put him in an arm lock and we can, we can get him to answer the prayer. But we, if, if we just get enough people on this thing. You know, sometimes we think in those ways. And I don't know if that's actually true, though. Like, in this case, Shimon was like, you guys pray for me. And uh, he just needed to pray for himself and talk to God for himself. So that's something this story teaches us about, uh, about us as human beings. So the last question I want to look at from the story is uh, the question of what does the story tell us about Yeshua, Jesus of Nazareth? Uh, the first big thing it tells us is just that he's the Messiah. Philip couldn't have healed those quadriplegics and paraplegics unless Yeshua really was alive from the dead, unless he really was powerful, unless he was really backing Philip's message by uh, confirming those things. So that's the, that's the first thing that we see. And you know, for me as a Jewish person, that's a big thing for me to come to, to say, yes, I believe in Yeshua of Nazareth as the Messiah. But I think there's really solid evidence that he was and is the Messiah. Um, the, another thing this story tells us is that the message of Yeshua isn't just for the Jewish people, although he is the king of Israel, he's the king of the Jews, he fulfills so many of those prophecies from the ancient prophets for Israel. His message is for all ethnicities, for all religions, sexual orientations, socioeconomic statei. It's for everybody. And then, of course, we all say, yeah, of course, you know, God loves the whole world. God wants everybody to reconcile uh, with him. God wants to forgive everybody uh, on the basis of the good news about, uh, about his son and everything. And we all say that, right? But do we really believe that? Do we really believe that God's message is for people maybe on our block that are totally not like us? Or people in the city that aren't in our socioeconomic status? Are we actually going to those people? Are we talking with those people? Um, that, that's something challenging from the story. You know, Philip didn't just say, oh yeah, God loves the Samaritans horrible people that they are, and I'm never going to talk to one. But yeah, God loves them, and I'm sure that his, his message is for them too. He wants to, you know, have them reconcile with him. Oh, he, he, he backed that up by crossing a cultural barrier and going to those guys and talking to them, going right into their midst, into their capital city, right? 
and being friendly with them and helping them. No, that's why we as a community, we get together in the park, why we get together in houses on Friday nights, and I guess you could say we do church in houses Friday nights, because we're going to our neighborhoods, we're going to our friends, and we're trying to lower the cultural barrier, because we really believe that the, the message of Yeshua is for everybody. So that's something we get from the story that, quite frankly, I hope challenges us. And then finally, uh, the last thing that this story tells us about Yeshua is something about his spirit. And uh, this, is, this is actually, at first glance, this is a quandary. And I, I want to I kind of break, break down this quandary with you guys and just raise some questions and see if we can figure it out. Uh, you remember how the, the, those first disciples in Jerusalem experienced the Holy Spirit from God in, in powerful ways. Like they were able to speak languages that they never learned. Uh, they uh, were able to have like heal people supernaturally. They were able to do exorcisms that nobody else could do and uh, bring sanity to some literally insane people. Uh, all kinds of things like that, right? And then the, the, the gospel crosses this cultural barrier and goes to the Samaritans and th- none of this happens in their lives. And it, it actually says in the story, here I'll, uh, I'll, I'll read it for you in, in Acts chapter 8. It says, um, where is it here? Okay, Acts 8.14, it says that, um, so the apostles in Jerusalem come down, a couple of them. It says, they came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit because he hadn't fallen upon any of them yet. They'd simply been immersed in the name of the Master Yeshua. Then they were laying their hands on them and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. That's a quandary. Did they, uh, did they not experience the Spirit of God? Because, uh, here, I'll think of a couple of scriptures here. You remember Paul wrote, nobody can say Jesus is Lord. Yeshua is the Master. He's the boss. And live their lives to back that up, except by God's Spirit. That takes the Spirit of God to change your heart, right? Because we all just want to do our own thing and we're totally independent. And it's kind of hard to believe in a guy you can't even see. So that kind of takes the Spirit of God. You remember that, right? But these Samaritans said, yes, Yeshua is the master and we're going to follow him even though he's a Jew and we hate Jews. <laughs> was that the Spirit of God? That, I think that would have had to be. Yeah, because that just doesn't happen normally. Um, there's also a passage where Paul said that every believer becomes part of the body of Messiah and it's like you're, um, it's like you're submersed into the Spirit of God, and that's how you become part of the body of Messiah. And every, every believer experiences that. So we can, like, I think we could safely assume, yes, those Samaritan disciples, they, they had experienced the Spirit of God, and that's how they came to faith and stuff. But why does it say the Holy Spirit hadn't fallen on them? Why does it say there was still something more for them to experience? Can you hear the quandary there? It's, 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 a, it's a very puzzling thing, actually. Um, Here's, here's my theory. I'll, I'll, share, I'll share with you my theory. My theory is like when someone becomes a believer in Yeshua, God's Spirit comes into them and becomes, begins changing them from the inside out and empowering them to, uh, to do His will and to accomplish the mission that God has for them. All of those things, right? It's like you, you, um, He makes us new people. But there's also more available to being empowered, to being filled right up, uh, to having like supernatural dynamics at work, at work through you, that kind of stuff. Um, here, here's an example. Remember when Yeshua was raised from the dead and he appeared to his disciples when they were behind locked doors and they totally freaked out and uh, he said shalom to them, which is cool. And then he breathed on them and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. Did they receive the Holy Spirit when he said that? My guess is he, that they did. But 
he still said, so now I want you to park in Jerusalem and I want you to stay here until you get empowered. And that didn't happen for another week or two, at least. In fact, no, sorry, that didn't happen for another month and a half, approximately. And then they were empowered, eh? So my theory is, yeah, the Samaritan disciples, they had, of course they had received God's Spirit, but there was this certain empowerment that they hadn't experienced until the apostles came down. So I'll share with you a little of my story uh, that you might find that interesting. Like I, you know, I, I became a believer in Yeshua of Nazareth uh, when I was relatively young. And uh, then when I was like 12 or 13, I was like, you know what? He said that you're supposed to get uh, immersed in water if you believe in him. And I believe in him, but I haven't gotten immersed in water. And that's a big inconsistency. So, you know, I, got, I, got, I went through that process. And then it wasn't until I was 15 or 16. And I was really like, what's the Holy Spirit all about? Like, I, I know there's more than what I'm experiencing. And so I just, I took a couple months and I just looked up every single place in the scriptures where the Holy Spirit was mentioned and just tried to understand it better, hey? And uh, I hit a point where I was like, you know what, I really believe that there's more to God's Spirit for me to experience. And so I just started asking him every day if I could experience more, hey? <laughs> And uh, that, that actually, like, was a real turning point in my life. Uh, I just, I used to, like, I used to have a paper out, right? And I would just, like, deliver newspapers. And um, I would, like, I'd spend some time talking to God and praying and stuff. And, like, I don't know, it just kind of took off for me. Like, God became so real to me after I spent those couple of months just studying about the Holy Spirit and asking Him for more because I believe there was more. Like, He became so vivid to me. Like, I can't even describe it. And, like, I would read this book and it would like leap off the page. And it was like, it gripped to me. And it, I don't know, I, I can't even describe it. It just it got really exciting. And that's where, I don't know, that's where like my discipleship really took off, right? But that's my experience that, yeah, I had received God's spirit, but there was more that he had for me. And uh, for me personally, it took me like kind of going on a quest to, to find it and uh, making some specific requests before I, I really experienced that. So I think that's, I think that's something that, God does have for all of us like more of his spirit a greater degree of his power and uh, I'll give you three like really practical things for maybe how we could see that happen if you want to see more of God's spirit in your life Uh, number one Yeshua said okay if you dads give your kids good things when they ask then God is the best dad ever and he's going to give you his Holy Spirit if you ask so number one asking God for his Holy Spirit is a fantastic idea because he'll be like yes that's a good request. I totally am going to do that for you. Um, number two is, um, you remember like on the day when God poured out his spirit on like all those uh, people in Jerusalem and they were speaking all those other languages and stuff and uh, Simon Peter ended up standing up and they were like, ah, we killed the Messiah. What do we do? And he's like, well, believe in him and turn your lives around and get immersed in water and then you are going to experience the same thing we're experiencing. Like, the Holy Spirit is God's promise to every believer. And it's, it's, it's for you, it's for your children, it's for everybody that God calls, even people far away. So I think that, like, the number two thing you could do is just say, yeah, God, that, that's a promise for me. Thank you for that promise. I, I'm going to take you up on that. So asking God is good. Just accepting it and saying thanks and kind of, like, taking it is good. And then um, the third thing I think that's really good is um, the apostles, there was one point where they said, God gives his Holy Spirit to those who obey him. So I think the third thing is like not messing with God, saying like, I'm, I'm, I'm totally committed to you. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to do your instructions. Let's do this thing. And as we submit our lives to him and we obey him, 
it's probably not surprising that we'll correlatively see more of his power operative in our lives. It's kind of like when you ally yourself with him and you start doing his work, he's going to back you there, right? So that's, that's the third thing that maybe we can, we can see from that. I, I, I see some symbolism there. Like, why? Why did, it, why did the apostles have to come down and put their hands on them? What is, what is, that, what is that a symbol of, like them putting their hands on them? Um, I think one thing I would see from that is like the Samaritans didn't see themselves as a bunch of people way over there that didn't belong. The Samaritans were like, yes, we are part of this community. The apostles put their hands on us. That means we're part of this thing. And these guys are our leaders also. And I think that's, that's a really good thing that we can look at today. Like we can be like, yes, the Messiah is totally our leader and we're following him and he's our, he's our ultimate authority. But we also take his apostles really seriously. So you know the apostles wrote some stuff in here. We take that seriously. Uh, we are like, maybe you could say, an apostolic community. Um, the apostles gave some instructions to disciples. We take that seriously. We do that stuff. And uh, that could also be something that will result in us like experiencing God's power in our lives to a greater degree. Um, here's, here's one thing I want to tackle with you guys for a second too. Um, you, you, you know, with the, the Catholic Church system and the Pope, um, there's this concept out there called apostolic succession, right? And basically, apostolic succession is kind of like um, the equivalent of dynasties for kings. So, you know, you have a king, and then he has a son, and that son becomes king, and it goes on like that, and there's this kind of, there's this row of kings, right? And apostolic succession is the idea that Simon Peter was the first Pope, and then there was another and another and another, all the way until today. And so the, uh, the current Pope is... Um, basically uh, is like the apostle of today and, and, uh, and uh, succeeds the successor of Simon Peter. And um, I, would, I, would, I, I disagree with that, and I'll, I'll explain that to you briefly. Um, I do believe that God has apostles today. I do believe he sends men and women on a mission, that he speaks through people, and that he, um, he gives authority to people to, uh, to lead communities of Yeshua's disciples. But when you look at the Catholic system, and uh, when you look at the Pope, okay, let's just say this. When you read the history of the Catholic Church, and you read the history of how a lot of popes behaved, I think it's safe to say they weren't apostles, because they did not exhibit any signs of, like, following Yeshua at all. Um, anyway, I, there's, like, lots of history there. I don't think I'm going to go into, into it, all of it right now. But... Suffice to say, when it comes to the whole laying on of hands things, I don't think the succession is through the line of popes that historically have, have been the heads of the Catholic Church. But I do believe that Yeshua has apostles for us today. I think those are people for us to take seriously, to listen to, and, uh, and to appreciate. So, I'll just, I'll just leave you with this question. Um, this is a really cool story about a wizard who becomes an ex-wizard about um, people who were totally rejected and didn't feel loved and they realized they were loved by God. This is about like an administrator who goes on an adventure, jumps a wall, crosses cultural boundaries. Shalom, I'm Izzy Avraham and thank you for joining me for this talk. I delivered these messages live during the years I was leading a congregation. They're now hosted by my Hebrew school, Holy Language Institute at holylanguage.com. If you're interested in the talks I've done since then, or if you'd just like to say thank you for these teachings, become a member at holylanguage.com.